I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for your consistency and your love towards us in Jesus. And I just ask God as we wind down with only two more weeks left in Paul's letter to the Romans, that they'd be meaningful weeks. They'd be weeks where we continue to internalize the truth of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what we needed, but what we have and what we get to do in light of that in response to that in the way that we love each other and the world around us. And so, Lord, teach us. I pray that you'd speak through me and in spite of me. And would you move us towards um, your truth, Jesus, and ultimately towards your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Um, do you guys remember a world before the Enneagram? Anybody? Do you remember when like, you didn't know what your type was? You're like, my type's handsome, tall, dark, that kind of thing. Like, no, your Enneagram type, right? Uh, before the Enneagram, there was this thing called the Strengths Finder Inventory. Anybody remember that? Actually, backed by research, better assessment. I'm just going to put it like that. But, um, but the Gallup, it's true, it's true. Uh, Gallup organization put it out. It was an organizational psychology tool, personality deal. Um, Will has uh, agreed to explain it to you guys as a marriage family therapist how the Strengths Finder works. So uh, he loves personality assessments. I really appreciate that, bro. But, um, but what it did was it said is too often what we seek to do when we try to grow as people or as organizations is rather than um, what we tend to do is we focus on our weaknesses, we go, we need to shore up our weaknesses versus playing to our strengths. And so it says, hey, what are you good at? And, and so it's kind of like a secular spiritual gifts test, to be honest. It's like, man, what are you good at? Um, and uh, you, you have a top five. And the, the idea is, is that the best version of you is you growing in that, those areas. These aren't, by the way, areas of character, areas of personality and like talent, okay? So it's like, oh, don't worry about your character deficiencies. It's fine. Just get good at finances. No, it, it's... It's saying, here's where you're, uh, don't worry about like trying to improve things you clearly don't have talent in and really focus in on what you're gifted at. And I have one called connectedness. Anyone, any connectedness people in the house? Okay, cool. You're like, man, we're all connected in this room. Um, and connectedness is basically you see a larger thing. Like you, you if you were doing kind of like uh, gestalt therapy, is that right? Uh, well, uh, uh, right, like, like if you had a, uh, the, you know, they like put up a bunch of dots and they go, what do you see? Like a connectedness person is like, I see a lot of stuff. Okay, so basically you, you see how history is connected or people and places and spaces are connected and ideas are connected. And and so basically you kind of live with this idea that the world is smaller than you think. Uh, or, or sorry, you, you, you see that the world is smaller than, than most people think. And, and that's me, man. I, so often I just geek out on like how we're all connected, where stuff came from. And and I remember one time I was. Um, uh, I was walking in Israel. Uh, I went on a tour of Israel, and I was walking out of what they say is King David's tomb, though it probably isn't, okay? And uh, part of the world I've never been to, I, I'm not, I don't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. I don't spend a lot of time kind of walking those streets. And, uh, and I was walking around, and I just heard a guy out of nowhere, uh, or a, sorry, a woman, just say, Andrew Rogers! Uh, and again, that's not, like not a Hebrew accent, just so you guys know, okay? It was a British accent. And I looked, and there was this um, British gal named Sarah I know, and uh, that I've done church planning stuff with in London, and my mind was like, what is going on? And so we ended up connecting. Uh, we ended up grabbing cocktails. Uh, he, uh, also with her husband. Uh, and uh, they were in Jordan doing NGO work, and they crossed the border. They're like, we're Christians. Jordan's right there. Might as well see Israel. It's a big deal. And so they came over and did that. They just happened to drive across that day. We're in, the, we're in Israel for like a day and a half. We bump into each other on a city street about 8,000 miles from where I live and about 3,000 from where they live. And that was like a real moment of connectedness. 
And so what I want you to catch is like all, this happens all the time whether you know it or not, but you are more connected to other people than you realize. And so even though we're here in San Diego in, a, in 2022 in a specific space and place and time, uh, you are connected, the Bible says, to, to Christians throughout the ages and in other spaces and places and nations. This isn't the only church, like the only true church. We are connected to, to people um, uh, all throughout history. And so if you guys have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I think we're going to see Paul describe and kind of flesh out this idea. Romans chapter 16. And if you're familiar with um, the Bible, you might be wondering, Andy, why are you going to read from verse 1 on in Romans 16? This is final greetings. Uh, and I think for a lot of us, we can view the final greetings at the end of epistles as kind of like the final credits at the end of a Netflix show. You're like, okay, it says skip now. Do you want to skip? You're like, yes. I don't care about these credits. Uh, we, we tend to skip those. Um, uh, however, it's different if you know that they matter. Uh, I remember one time I was on a flight with Brad Sarian, and uh, he watched some movie with Brad Pitt in it. I don't remember what it was called, but I just remember that there was uh, credits. And he's like, dude, a guy in my church was the stunt double for Brad Pitt in this movie. I want to see his name's in here. And it was. He got excited. He took a picture, uh, all that stuff. And, and so there was a meaning to it. Uh, again, we worked at a church in the San Fernando Valley for two years. One-third of our church worked in the entertainment industry. They were about credits. Got the, the, the grips, the props, all that stuff. Uh, and so in the same way, um, if you understand what to look for, there is a lot of meaning at the end of these letters. These names aren't just random names. They tell you something about how the early church related to one another, who was a part of the early church, uh, who had power, who, who, had, who was gifted, who, who was empowered, uh, who re- how do people relate to one another, how they feel about each other, how do they approach ministry. And so uh, in today's message, as I read these names, I want you to think through a, a big family. A big family that has a mission uh, that works together. We'll call today a family of churches. So Romans chapter 16, we'll start in verse 1. It's the Apostle Paul writing. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, or many translations say a deacon, of the church in Centre. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matters she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. So this is someone who is a co-laborer of Paul's. She's also helping fund Paul's ministry. Uh, we think there's a good chance she's a traveling business woman uh, who is also delivering this letter, which we'll get into later. It's really, really important. Verse 3, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epinatus, who's the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet uh, uh, Androgynous and uh, Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. They also were in Christ before me. Been believers longer. Verse 8. Greet Ampelatus, some of these names are tough, right? Uh, Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our coworker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Uh, greet Apollos, who's approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my, uh, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of narcissists who are in the Lord. Uh, greet Trephena and Trephosa. Uh, sounds like the stuff that hits you every turkey. Uh, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my, friend, my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Uh, greet uh, Askindrit, <laughs> Askindrit, uh, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Uh, greet Philo- Philologus and Julia. 
uh, Julia, come on, uh, Nearest and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them uh, greet with one another with a holy kiss. Whoa. Uh, all the churches of Christ send you greetings, okay? So what I want you to see is Paul is writing to a bunch of people about, he's writing to a bunch of people in a place that he is not in, and he's telling them about other people who aren't in the place that he's in, and they're not in the place that, that they're in, and so there are multiple gospel, uh, there's multiple spaces of gospel partnership. It's multiple spaces and places of ministry. There's a family, it's like an extended family that's bigger than one city or one place or one church. There's a family connection going on outside of the context of, that Paul is in and outside of the context that the Roman church is in. Now, sadly, many Christians today in America could not write a letter like this uh, because church is a service you go to maybe once a week, maybe three times a month. And that's it. It's an event. It's not a people you belong to. But, and a lot of times we don't just think uh, event, we think boring events. But, but Paul goes, when you think church, you should think two words, intimacy and adventure. Intimacy and adventure, not boring and fake. Intimacy and and adventure. And you should think family, not events. Church is not a boring event you go to. It's, it's an exciting global family you get to belong to. As you read the New Testament, uh, something you'll notice about the earliest followers of Jesus is that they lived very communal lives. It is likely uh, they would have struggled with the idea of having a personal relationship with Jesus because together they had a relationship with Jesus communally. They're very boho that way. They together were told to, they together were told to go and make disciples. They together waited in the upper room for the Holy Spirit. They together devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They together shared their resources so that there was not a needy person among them. They ate meals together with glad and sincere hearts. And together they saw women and men saved daily. And so there's no such thing in the New Testament as a Lone Ranger Christian or a solo Christian or a free agent Christian who sought to follow Jesus all by themselves. And again, many believers in today's church acknowledge the need for community. I think as a church, we've done a pretty good job of saying, hey, we belong to one another. Uh, we're not just individuals. Um, you impact me and I impact you. If church is a family, that means we're going to impact each other. If we're a family, we're going to fight sometimes. We're going to have awkward moments. It, can hap it happens with families. But we're also committed to each other. We want to help each other. We want to serve each other. We want to work through conflicts. But what uh, I think we miss often is, is that it's not just this family. It's that there's an extended family. So as, even though people are kind of warming up to the idea that church is a community you should belong to, uh, oftentimes we think it's just my church. And the churches outside of here don't matter. And oftentimes that's also because leaders in America want to make their local church like their thing. Instead of seeing it as Jesus' thing, that's a part of Jesus' bigger thing. But regardless of whose fault this dynamic is, as much uh, as the New Testament doesn't promote a vision of life in Christ that includes isolation from other believers, it also doesn't include a vision of church life that's isolated from a broader community of churches. So there's a local and translocal reality to life in the New Testament. The church is often seen in the scriptures partner with one another to see new churches started and then continue to encourage one another as time goes on. It's what some theologians call an apostolic sphere or today we'll call a family of churches. Um, that's why we're partnering with other churches in the city to put on the Royal Kids Camp. And it's also why we raise a ton of money alongside other churches every year to send gospel workers into new cities, spaces, and places. As an interconnected group of churches who are scattered all around the world in different churches. And we see this with Paul. 
they're interconnected they're not in uh they're not uh independent they're interconnected and interdependent Again, I, I visit uh, the different churches in our family of churches a few times a year. Uh, and often when I do that, you guys, uh, I often find out that I had family I didn't know I had. Uh, and this happens pretty much every time. Uh, and it reminds me of a time I, about six years ago, my, um, my aunt died in Boston. And I went out. My dad has 11 brothers and sisters. Just think about that. That's a lot. My mom dealt with a lot. And, uh, and they all had kids. My dad's the youngest. Uh, and then he moved to California. So, like, when I went out for this funeral, I, I mean, I'm, I'm running in, you know, I'm just stacking cousins, right? Like we've got dozens and dozens of cousins who have had kids and some of them who have had kids. I had cousins who had grandkids. And uh, as I was there, I was like, man, I have so much more family than I realize. And this happens all the time. It, it, even when I go to the churches in SoCal, I'll find there are people I do not know. And so last Sunday, uh, Jackie and I were at Harbor City in, in Durban, South Africa. We were there for the handover service um, where um, – Grant Michelle Clark were handing over the leadership of the church to Jamie and Lisa Turnett, and, uh, and, and we got a bunch of time with them and their family uh, over the last two visits. And, uh, and I reconnected with another guy, some of you guys know, a guy named um, Eugene Schlope. Uh, I think we have his picture here, if you guys remember him, for these that have gone out before. Um, and Eugene is a guy who, um, he's been a part of Harbor City since pretty much the beginning, about eight years of the eight and a half years, and he's a teacher uh, at a school in the township. And, uh, and he also started uh, on his own an arts program that end up getting funding uh, from the province that they're in, the state that they're in. Um, and, uh, and he's a big time artist. Uh, he's danced in music videos that are like MTV Africa, uh, genuinely MTV Africa. And, uh, and he has a big heart for the arts and creating a space for kids to have a creative outlet who don't normally have one. And so he's been doing that. And recently he found out that his, uh, I was talking to him for about an hour at Grant Michelle's going away party. And he found out that his school has been shut down by the government, which bumps him out. And with that, the arts program, um, but he's looking to, uh, they're actually already started, they're, they're resurrecting the arts program and the churches are going to fund it. And uh, they're getting things going. And on top of that, he said, actually, Andy, Grant's talked about it for a long time, but we need to start a church there. And, uh, and I'm going to start a church planning residency to see a church happen there. Uh, I met another guy there. Uh, so, so I've known Eugene for a while. I met another guy there for the first time named uh, Tabani Latuli. Um, uh, by the way, Tabani is like the fourth most common name in Zulu. I know you guys met the other Tabani, Tabby Cats. It's a different guy. Um, but uh, this is Tabani Latuli, and he actually leads a college ministry on campus in Durban uh, at a university there. And he's starting a pastoral assistant internship under Jamie, uh, and he'll be diving in for the next two years. And actually, part of why he's able to do that is because Grant and Shell are coming here, and so they can pay him a decent salary to be able to jump in and do the work uh, as he's going to seminary and, um, uh, and jumping in. And then while I was in South Africa, so I have old, old brother, new brother. While I was in South Africa, I connected with Kyle and Kaya, the couple we sent to Northern Africa. Uh, they had to do a visa run. I was like, you know, it'd be a good visa run. Come to South Africa for this handover and uh, meeting all these people who have been praying for you. There's a monthly prayer meeting for Kyle and Kaya. It's the best attended in our family of churches for them, I found out. Uh, and so they got to hang out with the couple that leads that. They've been, uh, they meet over Zoom uh, with Kyle and Kaya once a month. And, uh, and, and it was so funny. Jackie was at Grant Michelle's going away party and the, the other Tabani, uh, he rolled over and he's like, hey, what's going on with those Tunisia people? And Jackie's like, it's her. <laughs> she went and got the Northern Africa people, like, what's going on with the Northern Africa stuff? And so then they got to, um, yeah, catch up and talk about that. And as, as we start to talk, there's a lot of amazing stuff happening um, in Northern Africa. Um, uh, the guy that Kyle led to Jesus about a year and a half ago, um, uh, he has recently led another guy to faith and baptized him, uh, Ahmed. 
And uh, Jackie and I have met Ahmed. We've gotten lunch with him before. He WhatsApps me. He's a funny guy. Um, but beautiful story, but gnarly evangelist has already experienced persecution. Um, just wild stuff. And he just said, but man, how much does God love us to send his son? It's like his son, Andy. It's like no one's doing that. He's like, I wouldn't do that for you. I was like, I wouldn't do that for you. It's like, but God did that. He loves us, bro. I remember him just, he's never heard the gospel and he heard it, you know, through Kyle and Kaya and his, his, his mind was blown. And so they've actually started to gather in house churches. If you guys have kept up with them, um, they're learning the ways of the kingdom. Uh, because every human being is made in the image of God, that means every culture in this world has beauty in it. There's no culture that's all bad. But it also means because of the fall that every culture has brokenness in it as well. And so in Tunisia, uh, they're, they're asking the questions as the gospel comes in, what's good in our culture that we need to keep no matter what? Because it actually displays Jesus better than the people who brought us the gospel most recently. But on the flip side, um, uh, what should change? And so um, the, one thing that they, that's already great about them is they have communal life together. They live life together as Tunisian people. Uh, but one thing that they, they don't have is a culture of verbal honor. And so what they've been teaching, they, they have birthdays and restored style. At birthdays, they've taught them to honor the person verbally. They all go around and say, hey, here's, here's what I love. You guys have been to a restored party. Uh, here's what I love about you. Here's how I love, here's how God has made you uniquely, and I, I love that about you. And here's why I'm so grateful that you're in my life. And so they were, they were modeling that and teaching that, and they started to do it. And the first birthday party they did that at, it was so new culturally that what they did was, is every, so there's the person uh, whose birthday it is, who's going to be affirmed, right, who's going to be honored. And it was so new culturally that um, the New Testament believers, what they did was is they, they said, here's what I love about you, and then they all gave a critique about what was hard about being their friend. <laughs> like, hey, we're just giving feedback, right? Like, positive, negative, I want to make you, right? And it's like, man, you're always late. Uh, and it's like, dude, what are we doing? Um, isn't that crazy? But then they learned, like, no, we want to be a culture that honors, and so they got to unpack that. And they're like, there's a space for that, but that's not that space. And so they're doing it, and they're saying, hey, this is countercultural, and they're teaching each other. Another thing culturally that, that, that they've been working through is conflict and honor-shame context. If someone wrongs you, you just cut them off. And so one of the things that's happened is, is there's like two main churches in the city there. And what they found is like new believers would get saved. They'd have a conflict with someone at church, because you will. And then they'd just go to the other church. And then they would just go back and forth, because they don't have a million options. And, um, and you're kind of hoping that, the, that whoever you had a conflict with before has also moved on. You're kind of going back and forth. And, uh, and, and so... They were talking, and, um, and so Kyle realizes that this one guy has been offended by someone in the church, and so um, he's, like, trying to figure out what to do. And then another guy comes, the gu a guy comes to him and goes, man, I, I've been thinking about this, this guy who he doesn't know is in, like, the middle of, like, a com conflict turmoil with another person. So we got four people. Kyle's getting the report from the person, and this person, sorry, Kyle got the report from the person who was offended, who was thinking about leaving. A third guy comes who doesn't know anything and says, uh, God put guy number two not Kyle on my heart and I feel like I'm supposed to like go talk to him and like see how he's doing and and stuff like that and then uh and then there's the the, the fourth guy doesn't even know that the other guy is beef with the brother so the, the second guy goes and meets with the third guy and they talk and then he says hey man I have a problem with guy number four so guy number three says I have a problem with guy number four uh, oh, Ahmed's guy number two we're just gonna say Ahmed so, so it is it was Ahmed. so Ahmed goes back to Kyle he's like hey man listen guy number two I'm gonna make this simple Ahmed tells Kyle Guy number three is really offended by guy number four. And I don't even think guy number four knows that he offended guy number three. Like, I think it might have even been an accident. I don't know. And then Kyle, he goes, what should I do? Like, I feel like we should help them. And then Kyle goes, well, there's this verse called Matthew 18, Ahmed. And 
Jesus says, hey, if someone offends you in the church, there's a brother, sister, like you go, he's like, really? Whoa. And, and he just reads them the passage. They, they walk through it and he goes to this guy uh, and then he goes over there and then now they're good. Like they, they've done conflict resolution in a way that's totally countercultural to most humans, but for different reasons there. So, and so what I want you to see is like this stuff's happening. I had pictures of them, which would have been more exciting, but I realized I shouldn't use them. Um, but there's this little family of disciples that's learning how to do conflict, that's learning to love one another uh, like Jesus and also continue to love one another like Jesus in the way that makes sense culturally. But what I want you to catch about that story, it might be hard to keep up with guy one, guy two, guy three, guy four. All those guys are part of the fruit of Restore Church Uptown because you guys sowed over $100,000 into that couple to see that work happen. Do you see that? We gave them our time and our energy and our investment, not just our money, but, but space to grow and learn. And we helped them um, get help and do the things they needed to do. And you guys got to be a part of that. And so that's the family of churches dynamics that you have brothers and sisters all over. You don't know. We're, we're hoping to go to North Africa later this year and South Africa later this year. Hopefully I won't have to go on every trip anymore. Grant can go. It's like South Africa, that's your thing, bro. You get it. <laughs> but, but I want you guys to go and meet your, your brothers and sisters in other spaces and places. And they'll be coming out here. Uh, I think we're going to get um, Tabani, Eugene, and Jamie uh, to all come out uh, for the family of churches retreat. And so it's exciting. And so, so why a family of churches? What do we receive from a broader family of churches? And the one thing I was to say is we receive clarity. We receive clarity. Um, pretty much every New Testament church Paul writes to has things he affirms them for or things he rebukes them for. Um, so like in the book of Philippians, he's like, you guys are really generous. And he pumps up their generosity. He's like, this is a kingdom value you guys are getting done. He's like, then he's like, your conflict is not good. <laughs> It's like, be generous towards how you treat each other, not just to me financially. And so, so there's both those things. And again, um, people, as people come in from the outside, they can see bl- blind spots that families or churches have. I, I remember, even for me and Jackie, um, I remember we, uh, we do see each other's blind spots. It's kind of hard to talk about them at times. It's, it's hard. Uh, marriage is hard. Um, but I remember one time uh, we had an old broke down car in our driveway for like two years that didn't move longer. <laughs> I, I got it. I got the battery switched out and fixed, and I turned it on, and Cobweb shot out of the AC at me. <laughs> like, it sat there for a minute. It was disgusting. Here's the thing. If you came to our house in Normal Heights, Will probably saw that thing over and over and over again walking down 36, and uh, I lived on the same street. He's like, man, that guy needs to get his life together, dude. That car, what, just, park it on the dry, just park it on the front yard. Uh, you know, it, it just, it was an eyesore. It was dirty. Uh, it, it made it hard. When people came over, we always, like, blocked the sidewalk. It was, like, not loving the neighbors. It was just crazy. But you know what? We forgot it was there. It's a, it's a car. It's a t- it weighs a ton. I don't see it. Because the longer you're in a system or a space or a place, you get used to it. Like, oh, yeah, we just have that car that doesn't run. And in the same way, you go, oh, man, we're, we're just church that gossips. Or we, yeah, we don't really do evangelism. Or we, um, does that make sense? Again, I was talking to Grant uh, about the values as they're coming in. And um, for them... Renewal has been such an emphasis because the brokenness was so front and center in their neighborhoods. They don't have, like, San Diego's got, it's still a very segregated, uh, not just racially, but also socioeconomically, especially in San Diego. There are clear dividing lines where you can live your whole life, and the cities are designed this way still, where you don't see people who are struggling financially. Or when you do, it's, it's, it might just be homeless people. Oh, that's really specific and unique, and it's, that's their choice or whatever, and you, you can live with these narratives. Um, but for them, um, they saw that all the time, so they did so much work 
on justice and mercy and renewal in their city. So I'm so excited he's coming in to, 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 to be with us to talk about that. Shell gave her life to that at the Domino Foundation, raising up entrepreneurs in the townships to, to take care of themselves and their families and even train others. So we're going to come in right away and see that. You guys don't do anything for renewal or not, not very much. It's all very uh, – we do – by the way, we've given away tens of thousands of dollars to people individuals that are connected to this church who are struggling, um, but, they're, but they're not uh, abroad. We're doing this together. And, and, and to protect people's dignity, we're not always like touting, hey, we're covering, you know, whatever. But, uh, but there is a reality that um, that's still a weakness. And then mission's been so rough the last two years with evangelism and Alpha and all that stuff. And so um, when people come in, they go, hey, this is a, man, you guys got to grow in this area. It's be really, really, really important. Um, which connects to the idea you also receive equipping in a, in a, in a family of churches. Again, some churches tend to be really good at evangelism, but they don't have very good theology. It's like, man, gospel gets saved, and it's like, no idea how to follow Jesus. It's like a, a, a baby NICU, just immature babies, just all over the place. Poopy diapers everywhere spiritually. No one knows how to do conflict. No one knows how to forgive. No one knows how to give. No one knows how to talk about Jesus. No one knows how to calm themselves in the power of the Spirit when life is hard. Or they might be good at caring for each other, just, just kind of meeting each other's needs, so they're like real good at potlucks, but they're not good at prophecy. They, they don't know how to um, spend time with the Holy Spirit, let them direct their day or, 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 you know, encounter him to encourage people. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul talks about uh, there, there are different types of leaders that equip the church to be something. It says, and he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles. That just means sent one or missionary. Uh, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And so there's these different types of gifted men and women who are designed to, to build up the churches. And here's the thing, very, you're not going to find very many churches that have all of these gifts all the time. But across a family of churches and network of churches, I got all kinds. I, I have multiple men and women in each of these areas that could bless us at, at different times. And so oftentimes we, we're limited to the gifting that's in the local church. And so often people that want to grow in those areas, they go to churches that are led by those types of leaders as opposed to adding that to a specific local church to make a well-rounded community. And we've seen this man, Brad Sarian, guy's a wild teacher. His, it was his idea to do the Bible reading challenge. He's like, dude, people love the Bible. He is a genuine theologian. He's probably his doctorate in applied theology at some point. And, and he, so he's, he's moving. He, he's an academic that way. He's a teacher that way. I mean, he loves the te- He loves people, but he loves books. And I remember he texted me recently. He's like, dude, my, my church is biblically illiterate. I don't know what we're doing. I was like, dude, if your church is biblically illiterate, we're all in trouble. <laughs> and again, because he, he's a teacher, he, he sees he's always never going to be content with, with where the church is in that area. Not just his, but, but all churches. He wants better thinking about um, issues in culture and politics, and he sees how theology should connect those things, but often doesn't. Uh, Tom, man, I, I, I've been in so many settings with Tom where we have like uh, a retreat or we're leading something or we go on a trip, and, and he's like, you know what we should do? We should pray for each other right now. And I'm like, dude, come on. Like, that's all you got. You always say that. <laughs> or my favorite is like, I could set up a time of prayer. <laughs> it's like, is that a sermon? He's like, it's not a sermon, man. But then, you know what, dude, he starts praying over people, and the room changes, and stuff happens in 15 minutes. It usually takes 15 years, 15 months. Not that their sanctification is done, but that they, they're like, I need to grow in this area. God's speaking to me. He loves me, but he wants me to grow, and I'm ready to follow him. And I believe this is from, from God, not from just these people. And he always wants the church to grow in that. 
Um, Ashley Stroman, uh, amazing shepherding gift. Uh, she is a licensed psychologist, but she's also um, someone who wants to integrate the gospel and Jesus into the work she does to see people experience their narratives being replaced with a narrative about Jesus. As much as those kids at the, the Royal Family, you know, kids camp need to hear truth spoken over them, all of us need that. And a lot of us don't get it nearly enough. And we need the gospel embedded, you know, not just like we know it doctrinally, but it's impacted our view of ourselves and the world around us. And she's, she's moving into that work and impacting not just our family of churches, but, but broader groups of people. Uh, Nicole and Paul Pham, uh, great at helping build community. We go on and on and on. But we, get, we, we need multiple equipping gifts to train us how to live life in certain areas. There are things that I could teach you really, really well. Not only just saying it, but even example. And then the other areas, I'm like, man, I am not that good at that. You need another um, woman or another man who can really walk you through that well. And in the church, we get that because it's not just one person. We, we have each other's gifts in play and a broader family of churches gifts in play. Another thing a family of churches gives you is, is a diverse set of brothers and sisters, a diverse set of brothers and sisters. You see this in the text today. Um, the names in Paul's letter, for us, all these names sound like they're from a similar culture and they're just hard to pronounce. Like we read them, we're like, not naming my kid that. Other than that, I don't really know what I'm doing with this. But the early church was diverse. There are Jewish names. There are Gentile names. There are some from the Middle East, some from uh, Northern Africa, some from Europe. Uh, and Paul, again, as he writes Romans, his big concern is the Jew-Gentile divide, uh, the ethnic, ethnic divide. He's applying the gospel to that. We, everything we learned, all this phenomenal theology we learned throughout Paul's letter to the Romans is intricately connected to the conflict that was happening in that church. And so uh, you might even wonder, like, why not just plant two separate churches, like Jewish, Gentile, you got language, all that stuff. And Paul knew that believers demonstrating unity in one church was communicating something about the reconciling power of the gospel. There's something you get with diversity that you don't get with, um, with a homogeneous church. So as restored, um, we want to see our church increasingly become multiracial and multiethnic. At least as multiracial as San Diego is, okay? I'm not anticipating, like, we got to get a bunch of, like, guys from the Czech Republic here. Like, that's just not really San Diego. But there should be a lot more brown people in this church uh, as a brown city in a lot of ways. And, again, I grew up in South San Diego. I grew up where it was um, majority brown. And now it's, like, majority white in a lot of the, the coffee shops I go to and stuff. I'm like, this is so weird. And it's not how city is. San Uptown's this way in a lot of ways, but, but San Diego more broadly isn't. And I was talking to a black uh, friend, a, a black pastor, a friend of mine, and I said, man, um, how do we make um, black folks feel more comfortable at church, in, in a white church? Because there is a big history of racial discrimination and prejudice. We don't have time to go into it. I give you books on it. But there's been a divide where, where there's black churches that had to start because the white church mistreated black believers. And they had to start their own denominations and churches. And so now we have this, we want to see this diverse thing happen, but it doesn't always feel welcoming to them. And so how do we change that? And, uh, and, and I said, man, everyone always talks about music. Like, we got to get, like, a gospel choir going. Like, we got to change the music. And I'll never forget it, man. He said, people attract people to churches, Andy. That's what missional living is all about. If there aren't that many brown or black people in your church, it's because your, your church isn't friends with brown and black people. He said, teach the church to make real friends across racial lines who they actually live life with, and your church will diversify. But to just change the music and continue to live in a segregated life like so many American cities are designed to have us live doesn't demonstrate the power of the gospel, though it might demonstrate how diversified the talents of your worship team are. And so, again, we don't want to be a church that has multi-ethnic services. We want to be a family that is multi-ethnic. 
And we see this all throughout Paul's letters. So the, the letter does reveal distinctions of race. It also, uh, we see distinctions, or distinctions of ethnicity. We see also see uh, distinctions of class in this church. Uh, Aristobulus and Narcius are both said to have been the head of a household or an estate. Um, some believe Aristobulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. Um, and then Erastus, Paul says he's the city treasurer, which is not like a low socioeconomic reality in Rome if you're the city treasurer. Um, at the same time, other names like Rufus and Urbanus were common slave names in the Roman Empire. And so again, we see that in this church, they're called to, to, to live life as a diverse family. Uh, but, but a family that is made up of equals. Uh, Romans 16, 16 says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. You might be like, whoa, kissing at church, weird. Be an American uh, take on that. But the emphasis on the word holy is on holy here. And that's why it's different than what you're thinking. Because to kiss someone on the cheek was a sign of equality. You'd kiss your rabbi on the hand or your master on the hand. You don't kiss them on the cheek. And he says to this diverse group of socioeconomic, uh, dis, uh, all these socioeconomic um, diversity, he says, you guys kiss each other as equals. Be equals in the church. And then lastly, we see a distinction of gender. I think it's probably the, the one that's most obvious in the text that really pops. Um, of the 26 names mentioned, nine are women. Okay, That might not sound exciting to you. It might even sound like, Sounds pretty patriarchal to me, only 9, 26, like they're 50% of the human race, but they're rocking like a third of the names. Well, you need to know that Paul's inclusion of women is very uh, intentional and very unusual. Paul says that Phoebe is a deacon, and deacons were leaders in the early church. They were appointed to work alongside elders to meet material and physical needs that would come up. And so as a deacon, Phoebe's playing a significant role in the life of her church, but also she's playing an important role in the broader apostolic sphere, sphere of Paul, the broader family of churches. Um, Paul recognizes her as a co-laborer, and he gave her an important task, bringing the letter to the Romans to Rome. Uh, she would have read the letter to them and conveyed Paul's wishes for it, and if they had questions, she likely would have answered them. Now, this would have been so countercultural at the time, okay? I know right now in our cultural moment, we throw around words like patriarchy, and they've lost meaning in a lot of contexts. A friend of mine was called out for calling uh, coffee from a part of northern Ethiopia uh, that's spelled G-E-I-S-H-A, geisha. He said geisha. And she said, I'm so tired of patriarchal coffee language. It's geisha. Which you're like, I, I, I miss that, right? We, we, we use, we, we, we make everything, um, or we overuse this word. But you need to know that the ancient world wasn't just patri patriarchal. It was truly misogynistic. It was a brutal place to be a woman. Um, you guys know Aristotle? Everyone loves um, real rough views on women. Ancient Greek philosopher, not a Christian, not a Jew, um, did not believe in the God of the scriptures as far as we know. He said, he said this, the reasoning faculties of a woman are inferior to a man. In children, they do not yet exist. So if you're a child, you have, you'll have a mind later. And if you're a woman, you have half of a mind today. That's a leading thought leader of the day. So that's Aristotle. Um, some people didn't believe that women had the right to live. Preston Sprinkle, a scholar, uh, he's spoken at our church before. He says this. He says, this degrading view of women in the ancient world is best portrayed in a letter written by a pagan man named Hilarion to his pregnant wife, Elise, about 1 B.C., right around when Jesus was born. 
Hilarion is away on business in Alexandria, Egypt, and he writes to Elise back in Rome. And again, back then you didn't have the you didn't know what the gender of the baby was going to be, uh, the sex of the baby before birth. And he said this. He said, "I am still in Ag- Alexandria. If you deliver the child before I come home, if it is a boy, keep it. If it is a girl, discard it." And he doesn't put context. Very flippant reference to gender-based infanticide, and that was Greek culture. Um, Ancient Jewish culture was often not a friend to women either. Uh, Pharisees, uh, the religious guys that got into fights with Jesus all the time. Um, By the way, if you think Jesus is boring or, like, just nice to everyone, read how he chats to the Pharisees. Like, he would have blown up some dinner parties with his talk. They didn't view women as dumb necessarily, but they did view them as temptresses. They viewed women almost exclusively through the lens of sexual temptation. Um, Greeks viewed women as children and portrayed them as dumb. Jewish leaders viewed women as always trying to seduce them, right? The Pharisees had this idea in their head, man, women just want me all the time. Like, yeah, dude, everyone wants the Torah teacher. This cool robe and his beard. Has it been around that guy before? Barista says hi. Like, I think she might want to go on a date with me. I was like, I think she's getting paid to talk to you right now. And so the Pharisees wouldn't talk to women in public unless it was a close family member. They wouldn't look at a woman. Often they would look down at their feet. They'd close their eyes to avoid lusting, even though everyone's in robes. Some of the Pharisees were nicknamed the bleeding Pharisees because they were always falling over and hurting themselves because their eyes were closed when a woman would walk by. (laughs) It was a real thing. Guys, we know this. Paul, Paul used to be a Pharisee. He meets Jesus, and now he has women he names in a public document as co-laborers in the gospel who he travels with and shares meals with and entrusts spiritual responsibility to. I think what he came out of, and it was still the culture he was in, scholar Michael Byrd writes this. Think about it. This is Romans. Paul's letter to unify the Roman churches and to prevent a potentially fractious cluster of ethnically mixed house churches from ending up like Galatia, where there were painful divisions over law and halkala, the oral interpretation of how exactly to obey the law. This is Paul's effort to return to Jerusalem with all of the Gentile churches behind him. This is Paul's one chance to raise support from the Roman churches for a trip to Spain. This is Paul's gambit to answer rumors about his ministry that he's either anti-law or anti-Israel. This is Romans, his greatest letter essay, the most influential letter in the history of Western thought and the singularly greatest piece of Christian theology. Now, if Paul was so opposed to women teaching men any time and anywhere, why on earth would he send a woman like Phoebe to deliver this vitally important letter and to be his personal representative in Rome? Why not Timothy, Titus, or any other dude? Why Phoebe? Dude is a real scholar move there. Again, guys, likely the first person to read what we know as the book of Romans ever out loud and explain it is a woman. She likely wasn't a pastor. She's likely a, a traveling businesswoman. This is Ali Shangel hitting the road, expositing Romans. It's a godly, mature woman who's a businesswoman. She's not a pastor, not in formal ministry as far as we know. She's a deacon. On top of that, Paul also mentions Priscilla in verse 3. We know from Acts that she helped to mentor Apollos, a well-known preacher in the early church. She didn't have good theology. He's like a real good talker, real bad theology, right? 
again, the point is these women were prominent and very influential in the early church, right? And it's true. We don't see any female elders in the New Testament. It's a whole other conversation. But we see women contributing all the time in terms of their spiritual gifts in the New Testament. They weren't in the back, like, making copies, getting coffee for the men while they were doing real ministry. They're doing it. They're going. This is why women preach in our church. It's why, for example, Sarah Ballard's going to preach her first sermon next week, or so I've heard. In our honoring week, Eric Laborn was like, when Sarah Ballard does the offering talk, it's like, we don't even need a sermon. And I was like, I'll take the hint, and Sarah, you're up. <laughs> and so in the church, we should see a society where distinctions of superiority based on race, class, or gender are increasingly not a thing in the way that they are in the world. We should all be holy kissable brothers and sisters. And that, you really see that as you broaden out to a family of churches in different spaces and places. And so those are the things that we receive from a family of churches. Now, as we get ready to, to close, um, I just want to say that, that there are different ways that you can contribute to a family of churches. Uh, one is prayer. We see Paul ask for prayer from people that aren't in his local church over and over and over again, and it matters. Uh, we had a situation recently where someone was going through something really tough, and they, and they told me later, like, man, I like, felt the prayer. Like, it mattered to us what we went through. Um, we also contribute people to f uh, a broader family of churches or a broader groups of ministry. It means we don't keep people just uh, kind of for our local church. I saw, I was grieved and encouraged. I saw a picture of our old staff team. Uh, I walked by Young Hickory in North Park, and it closed. I saw the letter. I was like, man, it closed. And I, whatever, I'm not going to get into that. But I was like, dude, for like four months, we had our staff meetings at Young Hickory because we had gotten so big, like we needed a full little picnic table situation. We didn't have an office. And I look at the picture and an unknown person, <laughs> it took us about a day of detective work, took the picture. And, and I looked, at, and it's, it's James Gutierrez. He's at Restored South Bay now. It's Nicole Pham, who left us and came back. Praise God. Prodigal daughter, you know, they always come home. There's Brad Sarian, who leads Restored Church LA. There's Tom Logue, who, who leads Restored Church Temecula. And then we realized Danny, who leads Restored Church South Bay, took the picture at the end of the table. Do you guys know Ashley and Scott are gearing up to plant a church in, um, in Ranch Cucamonga? Uh, it's happening in, in, in three weeks. Uh, Scott's going to give a farewell sermon. And uh, no one's going to cry, but it's going to happen. And so, um, so, so we send people, short-term, medium-term, long-term. Sometimes we send people short-term, like we send teams to Northern Africa or South Africa or Denver or Dubai or whatever. We're looking to do two trips again later this year. Sometimes it's medium-term, like sending uh, Paul and Nicole to help L.A. or sending uh, Tom and Ebony to start Restored um, South Bay. Or like long-term. When sadly, uh, we're going to send Maria to India in a, like nine months or whatever, and it's, it's a bummer, but it's happening, right? But there's this sending that we do, not because we don't like the people or don't love them, but because we, we, we value the gospel, and we value seeing it go do its thing. And so we come together for this greater purpose. And so we send, uh, we, we give prayer, we give people, and we also give provision. Uh, again, every year as a church, we do this thing called Give Love. Uh, where we raise money, uh, we, we raise money to, to, to give outside of our local church. It doesn't benefit our specific local church. We've raised over $450,000 across our family of churches over about a six-year period. Um, and uh, in a couple weeks, we're going to have um, a missionary couple, uh, Jacob and Sarah Lewis. Jacob is Josh Lewis's brother in Denver, if you guys know them. Uh, I think it's amazing that his sister-in-law's name is Sarah. Jacob and Sarah like the Bible. Another amazing thing about Jacob, he broke his hip as a kid. <laughs> Jacob in the Bible, and his mom called him a liar once, so, and she said, she said, you're living up to your namesake. He'll tell this story. It, it blew my mind, um, but great people. Uh, they're, they're going to jump in 
uh, and share the gospel with Muslims um, uh, in our country in a really unique, specific way that's going to require them to sacrifice a lot of time and money and energy. And so we're hoping to raise, um, uh, two weeks from now, we're hoping to raise money for them and for the Royal Kids Camp to say, hey, we want to contribute to things that are outside of our space and place. So what I want you to catch is, is we're a part of something bigger, but what I also want you to catch is, is you matter. You matter in the bigger story. No one, no one should be a sideline player. We have different roles, but no one, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should care about things beyond just your house and your church. But have a heart for, for what God's doing outside and in other spaces and places. Does that make sense? And for you, I don't know what that looks like. That could look like, um, you know, jumping in. Uh, Royal Kids Camp, by the way, is June 26th to July 1st. We didn't give the dates, which is probably a good cliffhanger. Uh, June 26th to July 1st. It could look like giving a significant gift. Again, I'd love to raise 10 grand for that thing just at Uptown. A fifth of, you know, there's five churches, whatever. I'd love to do a fifth. Um, it could look like, um, yeah, sitting aside that week. It could look like going on a trip uh, to North Africa or South Africa. It could look like um, uh, going to help start a church plant and maybe in Ranch Cucamonga or something like that. I don't know what it looks like, but is your life really Jesus's? And do you want to sow into a thing bigger than yourself? And so what I want to say is, 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 A, what's God calling you to? But before we get into that, I want to close with communion to say, before we're called to a mission, we're called to Jesus and to one another. The gospel reconciles people who should be enemies. Now, I'm not talking about people. I'm saying us and God. If there's anyone more different, it's us and God. If there's anyone who's fractured a relationship beyond repair, it's us and God. And God in Jesus takes the step to, to he, he comes in the incarnation, he, he extends his hand to us and he dies in our place because forgiveness is costly like it is in all relationships and he rises again in victory and he says, will you be reconciled to me? Will you be, conne- will you be united to me? Will you n- unite to me by faith? And then he invites us to be reconciled to others because we've been reconciled vertically. is like, man, go be reconciled horizontally, be united with the church and not just this church but churches with one another. I don't have time to get into, but it's a whole story in and of itself that's so important in this moment. King Jesus, we have not loved one another as we ought to. We've not been united as we ought to. We've not lived reconciled lives as we ought to. For so many of us, we've wanted to do our own thing. That's, that's the heart of sin, the heart of the fall is humanity saying, I want to go do my own thing. And we kind of, re- we rehearse that event in our lives each day. We don't want to be connected to you. We don't want to be connected to your bride. We ask questions like, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? Do I really need this church family? Do I really need a broader church family? Are our lives really intertwined? Are we really united? Are we really called to unite to one another in a way that reflects the way that Jesus united to us? And so, God, as we live our lives that way, I thank you that you died to set us free from having to do our own thing. I thank you that you died to set us into a better story, a truer story, a more glorious story, where we're not the center of the universe. I love what Sarah said earlier, we're not the center of the universe. Our house is the most important house in the church, and our church is the most important church in the broader universal church. But I thank you that all of us at the same time, none of us is more important, but we're all equally significant to you. 
You didn't die for any one of us more than any other of us. You died for us all the same. We all had equal need, and we've all received equal rescue, equal redemption, equal restoration that we're slowly but surely working out. And so thank you, Jesus, that you're making a new humanity, a new people that'll look like this world was meant to look like. Crazy, diverse, but loving each other as we were called to, to love each other. Living out what we're called to as image bearers, reflecting your love everywhere we go with whoever we talk to. So Jesus, thank you for being the first one to love sacrificially. Would you empower us to now sacrificially love as well? Thank you for your body and your blood. It's your name we pray. Amen.